Morning, church. All these exciting smiley faces. Now, if you're wondering why some of us are a little excited this morning and fidgeting and we're all over the place, folks, we had donuts galore in our Sunday school classes. So we're kind of on a sugar high. We like to say it's a Jesus high, but I'll just be honest with you, it's probably the sugar uh, and the caffeine this morning. But we've had a great time of fellowship and small group as Pastor Corey and, and Robert have shared with us about the power of God's Word this morning. Did you know one of the primary things that we value in our church is the issue we call discipleship? We believe that God's Word is the inspired Word of God and that its purpose is to edify the church, to edify all who hear it, into coming into Christ-likeness through its teachings. Folks, I firmly believe that if you want to hear God speak to you today, He speaks to us through His written Word. And we know that we can trust it, for it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So with that said, I want to invite you to find your place in your Bible as we're continuing working through, expositionally, if you will, 1 Corinthians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had fond relationships with, that he knew them personally, that he had experienced fellowship, that he'd heard good things, but he also saw some things happening, in the, and they were kind of going off the rail, if you were. They weren't following Christ the way that the Apostle Paul knew they ought to be. So he's writing to them some instructions. And we come to chapter 10 today, after already having listened to the Apostle Paul share with us several things that have gone on in the Corinthian church. Now we're at this point where he's going to share a few more things. And I would argue, as the title implies, he's going to share a few lessons learned with the church about things that they can reflect from their experiences of the past and apply them in their present to help them achieve their future. Paul understands, like most of us, it's best knowing where we're going in order to achieve that goal, right? When we can learn from where we've been to help us get us to where we're going. And we're going to see, as he reflects upon some Old Testament teachings, that which the fathers would have known the history of, and how do we apply it into our daily life. Now, most of you, if you were like me, you couldn't wait to get out of high school. Like, graduating high school was like, that was the big deal, right? Some of us walked out of there, we actually got a diploma. Some of us just walked out. We weren't concerned about the diploma. We just wanted it over, right? But it's interesting that you know what a diploma signifies for most of us? It doesn't signify the end of something, but rather marks the transition of an application in our life of something that we're supposed to have possessed. Whatever degree you may have, whether it's a college degree or a high school diploma or a technical university or any kind of skill where they've given you a certificate, That certificate means there's something that you have learned, that you have experienced, that you can apply now that's going to propel you in your life moving forward. Isn't that why we do it? We get that little piece of paper because we know that paper unlocks the door. It's the key that gets us that job interview. It's the key that gets us in front of certain people. It's the key that helps us achieve our goals in life. But at the end of the day, that diploma, all it did was give me an opportunity. Then I've got to apply what we have learned in order to be of value. Because there's a lot of folks with a lot of paper on their wall who are unemployed right now, right? we got lots of certificates and all that. Why? We're not actually applying what we've learned. So I want to share with you as we work through our, our skill set today, or our lesson today, my sermon as I preach it to you, what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. How do we apply the things that we've already been sealed with, if you will, on our diploma of salvation with the Holy Spirit that dwells with inside each one of us? You see, that diploma comes with a stamp and a seal on it to make it official. Well, if you're in the body of Christ, if you're a member of the church, the church universal, meaning you've been saved by Jesus Christ, as Brother Robert shared with you, by the blood of the Lamb, by Calvary's cross, 
then you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose to apply it in our daily life. So let's pick up in reading of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. And we'll go back and take a closer examination of what all is going on, these lessons learned that the Apostle Paul is applying to the church. Picking up in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put to Christ, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for the reading and proclamation of your truth, your word. Father, as Robert has already shared, as Pastor Corey has shared, as, as we know that your word does not return void, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Father, we pray now as your scripture has been read, as it will be edified and examined and exegeted and all those wonderful things that we do to clarify it, Father, I pray that it falls upon ears and hearts that are willing to receive or comfort us where we are challenged in this life, but Father, also challenge us where we have become comfortable in our walk with you. Father, we thank you for this reminder. May we apply these lessons learned to our daily walk. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you, we're going to, we're going to examine a few things. And, and I told Pastor Curly, Corey Orion, I've only got four pages of notes today for you. Normally I got five, sometimes six, but I still can't promise you it's going to be a short sermon. Um, so if there's hopes of getting to the restaurant early, you may be out of luck. So I'm going to give you a jam-packed 50 minutes worth of, of biblical exegesis, right? So I want to share with you a little outline. What do we see in this outline of what was going on in these short 13 verses? I would argue we can see an example that we need to learn from and an examination that we can apply to our life, and then also an escape to endure that God gives us through His Scripture. If you'll go back to verses 1 through 5 with me, we're going to see, number one, that there's an example that we learn from. There was a reason that Paul was giving all of the history of what Israel went through to get out of captivity, out of bondage, and to be brought back into the freedom in Christ Jesus. To leave Israel no longer slave, but to get into freedom. But there were some challenges there. So in our first point, an example to learn from, I want to share with you a few things that we can see in the text. Go back and look in verse 1 through 5 with me. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware. You see, there's instruction that's valuable that we have. If you'll go to point 1 for me on the slide, that might help everybody catch up. I don't know if it's there or not. But there's a reminder of what was happening in God's history. 
As he goes through the book of Exodus, as we see it recorded in there, that God's history had provided for his people in miraculous ways. You ever heard people say that if I could have just walked with God during the time of the apostles, if I could have just seen the miracles that Jesus did, if I could have just seen the healed lame man get up and walk, or the blind see, or the deaf hear, man, if I could have just seen that stuff, I'd believe. It'd be no problem. And then we turn around and we buy an airplane ticket, and we get on a plane, not seeing the cockpit or knowing how to fly it, and just putting our faith that the pilot's going to get us there. Isn't it interesting we can do those things so simply in our daily walk of routines, but yet when it comes to the issue of faith, we need certain tangible evidences. Show us a sign, Lord, as the Pharisees asked Jesus for another one after another one after another one. There's a reminder of God's history that God had set Israel free in Exodus chapter 13 and 21. They would have known this story. He says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Isn't it funny that God from the very beginning was leading his people and giving them instruction and things that they could learn from and an example to follow. Here they were literally following the cloud by day and the fire by night to leave captivity and go to freedom, to inherit the promised land that they had been given. But many grumbled. In Exodus chapter 14, we see another great sign that God had given, an example for them to know the true power of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty. And here's what he does. As they were leaving away, he says, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. We know this is the parting of the Red Sea. If you've ever watched any kind of documentary on this or a, a fictional film telling the story of the great exodus, I'm always intrigued by when you see them crossing the sea parted, the wall that's so tall. And if you're watching a good one, you'll see a whale and some fish in the wall in the river. As, you, as they're walking across, they can see all the animals still swimming to their left and right. And the scripture tells us they walked across on dry ground. Now imagine that. Imagine the sign and the indicator for Israel of the God that they worship and the God they serve that could part the Red Sea when Moses hit it with its staff and it just made way. And, and to make it even better, God let them walk across without getting their feet muddy on dry ground. And then to make that walk and to see the animals and the sea creatures and all that as they were going. And then to get on the other side of it. And when all of Israel was there, to look back and to see God collapse that sea on the pursuing Pharaoh army. Just completely annihilate them and wipe them out. Folks, that's what Paul is bringing to mind for those who had been following God, who understood the stories of God. He's saying, we know these reminders that we have of the history of being God's people. And I would argue as we look at this, I struggled a little bit with asking myself, well, was Paul speaking just to Hebrews? Because we know surely Corinth was made up primarily of Gentiles. So what was he speaking to here when he talked about our forefathers? You see, there was a promise given to a man by the name of Abraham. And that promise given to Abraham, we refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. That Abraham was told by God that you will be the father of many nations, plural. So therefore, I believe as we apply this text as Paul intended it, it brings the full picture in the scope that not only was this a reminder of the history for Israel, but it was also a reminder of the promise that God had given for the Gentile nation that we too were the people of God in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful reminder of the history. But I would tell you, the reminder that we have that probably stands out the most in my, 
my mind is when I look at Golgotha. When I look at Calvary, when I look at the cross that we have cheapened and made into some trinket we wear on a necklace or on a bumper sticker or on the back of our car, none of those things are wrong. But we're going to see it's how we apply the lessons we've learned that really matter in life. Golgotha, the cross, Calvary, the empty tomb, all of those serves as a reminder for you and I of where our salvation truly comes from. The hope that we have for all eternity, the hope that we have for our soul, anchored in the gospel, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, comes from Calvary's cross. Paul says here that they were following the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. But secondly, I'd argue there's a reminder of a great provider, not only of manna and water, but I would argue the living water and the bread of life for you and I. You see, as Israel was wandering through that desert, if you've ever been in a desert, you'll notice that there's just plush gardens everywhere, right? Tons of food, no problems whatsoever. Matter of fact, out west, if you ever get to go to wonderful states like Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico, there are great opportunities for land developers to build new homes and subdivisions and housing areas. You know what their number one problem is in the desert? Getting water to supply the needs of those people that are living there. You know, it was the number one issue that was the main problem for Israel, too, is they needed water and they needed food as they were making their way through the wilderness. But don't we have a God that is a great provider? In Exodus chapter 16, verse 35, we see the reminder that the people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. You see, God had provided for them. Now people say, well, what was, what was this manna, Pastor? Well, if you can think of foot bread or some kind of little wafer bread, they ate that constantly. And you know what they did after they got their belly full of manna? They began to grumble. Do I got to eat this again? You ever tell your wife that when she cooks dinner? She's got that thing that she's always making. It's like the budget meal that you got in your budget, and it's just what you eat on Fridays because that's what's in the budget. Put a little overtime, and you can have something else, right? It's like, man, I got to eat this again. And Now imagine being in the desert and God providing manna for you, and then after you get your fill of manna, you're like, you know what, God, this is, this is all right, but I'd really like to have some meat. You know what God does? He sends quail. They fly into the desert. Quail that's stacked up from the ground to like right about here would be the biblical measurement. They were like wading in quail. And you know what they did next? We're kind of tired of this quail. It's just, you know, isn't that our nature? We get used to a certain thing and we're like, you know, I need something new, a change. But God not only provides for them in the desert, not only the quail and the manna and the meat that they need to eat, but they were tired of it, and Psalm 105, 40 records for us. And they asked God to bring quail, and he gave them the bread from heaven in abundance. But then they got a little thirsty. Well, we got this meat, and we got this manna, and, and now we need a little something to drink. You believe they were actually starting to grumble after seeing all that they've done, saying, God, you know, why did you bring us to the wilderness? They literally tell Moses, it would have been better for us to go back to Egypt. Because at least in Egypt, our bellies were full. Now think about that. We'd rather go back to bondage and slavery because there we at least had full bellies. We got to eat all the legumes and the green plants and the fresh vegetables. Not the case here. Now they're grumbling. 
But God provides for him water as well. He says, Behold, I stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And God not only provides the food, not only provides the water for Israel, but you know that in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That God has provided a way now for you and I to eat of a bread that we will no longer hunger again for. You see, most of us ate breakfast this morning, and by the time I'm done preaching, you're going to be hungry again. Right? Amen? Right? Good affirmation. You're going to go and you're going to eat again. Jesus says, I've got bread that once you eat of it, you'll never be hungry again. He had a little encounter with the lady at a well. We know it as the Samaritan woman. As he goes through Samaria, and he meets this woman at this well in the middle of the day, not a normal time for the woman to be drawing her water. She was an outcast that already had several husbands. The one she was with now, Jesus would expose and say, even he's not your husband now. She would recognize who he was and say, surely I see that you are a prophet telling me these things. And Jesus says to her, if you knew who it was that was asking you to give him some water, you'd ask for me and I would give you living water. She gets real excited. She says, well, tell me who this is. He says, I am he, the living water. You will never thirst again. Your soul will be forever satisfied with the bread of life and the life of water that Jesus gives. What a reminder for the provider that has bought our salvation at the price of Calvary. But thirdly, there's a reminder about God and his justice. You see, there's a reminder of a just God in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now check that out. Look at that real closely. Notice what it says there. This is the people of Israel, God's chosen nation. God's people he brought out of captivity. It says, But nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. During that year, wandering around 20 years or so, they began to have children, and the nation of Israel began to grow and flourish, even in the desert. Maybe it was the manna, maybe it was the quail, maybe there was something in the water. There might be something in our water, too. we got like four ladies that are having babies right now, right? I'm not, I'm not sure, but there was something in the water in Israel, and they began to have children. But God reminds them of his justice, and he tells them, for not all will inherit the promised land. Not all of Israel will get to see that land of Canaan. They got to go right up to it, but they would die in the wilderness, having never reached it. It was those born in the wilderness who inherited the land promised. What kept Israel from inheriting their promised possession was disobedience, grumbling, stiff-neckedness, rebellion. We just kind of took the Burger King motto, right? Ever wonder where they get their slogan from? Have it your way? I think they were reading Exodus. Because they wanted it their way. You can have it your way. That's what our world teaches. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 29, God gives his decree about the Israel, the nation of Israel, and those who are grumbling in the desert. He says, Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Basically, if you were 20 years and older, you would never get into the promised land. It would be only those young children born under 20 years of age that were born in the wilderness during that experience that went through that trial that would go with Caleb and Joshua and take on the promised land. And the 12 tribes would be given their, their allocation of, of property throughout the region and the land of Canaan. How do we apply that? The reminder of a just God in our own life. 
Jesus reminds us in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Here's what Jesus says to his followers as well. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about y'all, but as a pastor, that kind of makes me tremble a little bit. A little self-introspection, if you will, of my own life and my own walk. God, is that for me? Now, if you're a pastor and you're asking yourself that, that's probably a good sign. Some, some fear of the Lord is a healthy thing. But it's a reminder, just like Israel was told, they would never enter the promised land because of their attitudes, their rebellion. Here, Jesus is reminding us, if we don't truly worship in truth and spirit, as James reminds us, if we do not be doers of the word and not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Folks, our faith is lived out by our actions. I think the reminder of a just God is calling us all to live out that faith daily and to apply the examples we have learned from history of God's provision, of the Red Sea that parted, of the great provision of God's food as the provider of what God has done as a just reminder that he will hold those wicked accountable. But isn't it wonderful in the New Testament, God's history and fulfillment in Christ Jesus, that we have a provider that secures our soul. If you've ever gone for one of those certificates, now you've had to take a, a final exam, right? If you're like me, we put that on the calendar. We've got a big red circle around it as if we need any more anxiety about the exam. We do it in red for some reason. Something about that color just triggers an emotional response, right? But we put those final exams on there, and, and we, we, we get all worked up. Now, I heard a story one time. This never happened to me personally. But I heard about a professor at the very beginning of his college class when the students all came in, and normally we come in, and the first thing we do is we go over the syllabus, and we look at the schedule, and we look at when the assignments are due, and we make sure all of that and in anticipation that we get what we need to take the test. Well, this professor on this day... When all of the students sit down, he's got this big stack of papers in his hand. And he begins walking, and one desk after another, he flips the paper upside down on their desk, and he comes back to his podium, and he says, all right, everybody turn your papers over. I have given you the final exam of this course. But all the blanks are left, or all the answers are left blank. And over the next 18 weeks or so, I'm going to teach you, and we're going to fill in every single answer to the test. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that kind of gets me excited, right? Sign me up for that one. I'm not sure if it's basket weaving 101, but if it is, I'll take it because I can probably pass that one, right? But see, he had a problem with his fellow teachers. The other teachers found out what he had done. They were, they were in an uproar about it. How can you do that, they'd say. You're giving them the answers to the test, and here was his logic. If I tell them what the test is going to be, and prepare them along the way, they'll be more focused on learning than they will on just getting the right answer. What an application for our life in the Christian walk. Folks, if we already know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by the Son, we've got the answers to the final test. Now we can spend our time enjoying the process of learning how to walk a Christian life. Not worrying about whether we will or won't lose our salvation or if God's going to cast me out because I'm unworthy. No, we can learn to walk through the process 
And every now and then we'll flip our pencil over and we'll have to use the eraser because we won't quite have it right and written down properly. We might misspell it or do something else. Then we flip the pencil back over and we keep writing the right answers. That's how we live our life. That's how we take this exam in our Christian walk, if you will. So secondly, I want to share with you an examination to apply in our daily life as we look at verses 6 through 11. Now these things took place as examples for us. Now don't for a moment, y'all, there are some out here that just because it says those were examples, that it was fictitious writing, that it wasn't actually something that took place. This was just allegory and good principle. I would argue when the Bible says it happened, it happened, amen? It actually took place all of the Old Testament. The first 11 chapters, you can set your clock by it. I believe in all of the sufficiency of God's Word, and it is not allegorical, but it actually took place for us. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. Imagine seeing that, being there, and those that were committing sexual immorality amongst Israel, and God's vengeance and His wrath and His justness came and sentenced them all to their final destruction. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Some of the greatest lessons in life come from knowing what not to do, what didn't work, and what mistakes not to repeat again. Albert Einstein, as he created the incandescent light bulb, as he was working through this process, he says, you know, I've done it a thousand different ways, and 999 of them weren't failures. They told me how it didn't work. But then I found the one way that it did. And we have the modern electric light today. What if we could look at our experiences in life and the things that didn't work out so well and not let our failures of our past determine our future, but learn from them and grow from them? Imagine if we applied that principle in our spiritual walk too. And when we stumble, we can fall, we can pick ourselves back up, we can repent of our sin and say, okay, Lord, I learned that lesson. Now help me apply it in my daily life. So let's look at the examination that we can apply to our life. Number one, we notice that in the very beginning verse that we see a couple words here that are extremely important. Notice the, the highlight of the word desire comes out. He says that we might not desire evil as they did. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, by the way, if you didn't know this about James, it's an interesting fact, and I, I go to it often because it's just such, a, such an awakening for me to understand that the half-brother of Jesus who probably was playing Tonka trucks together in the dirt there in Jerusalem, right, in, in Galilee when they were little kids, who were hitting each other with rocks and beating each other with sticks and playing king of the mountain and knocking each other off the wall. This is what I'm talking about, the family relationship. And this is the same James that didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah during his earthly ministry. Said he was out of his mind. Uh, there's no way. You're my, you're my half-brother, for crying out loud. How can you be the Messiah? But in the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, after Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, and risen, we see that James, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other disciples were in the upper room behind closed locked doors, afraid 
praying together. Here we see the first hint that little brother James had came to Jesus. Little brother James believed that Jesus was indeed, after his resurrection, the Messiah of the world. He saw it with his own eyes. What he was once deceived with, he now believed as being truth. And it's this James that's writing to us in James 1, 13 through 15. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Y'all catch that part? Huge principle here when we look at the, the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That God does not tempt you and I with sin. Now, some people think that that sin temptation God is putting, a, putting there for us to test us, if you will. But if it's evil, if it's sinful, God does not test us with those things. Well, what about Job, Pastor? Well, if you've read Job, and it's 40-plus chapters, you'll understand that it wasn't God tempting Job. It was God removing his hand of protection upon Job to prove a point to the great destroyer, the great deceiver, that Job was a faithful man, that even in the greatest of adversity and calamity of having to scrape his own skin with a, a, a tool, with the boils and the nastiness, laying in sackcloth and ashes and grieving over the loss of his wife and his children and all of his property and livestock and everything that once made him prosperous, despite his friends even condemning him and saying, why don't you just curse God and die? That was his wife, by the way. Whew. Imagine living with that. Curse God and die, she said. But Job remained faithful to the very end, is the point of the story. And God restored all of those things and then some to Job. What a beautiful image of examining this issue of desire that comes on here. James continues to remind us and let us know that God doesn't tempt us. In verse 14, he says, but each person is tempted. Now check it out. I could probably preach just on this. Matter of fact, I think I have before, but bear with me. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now here we see that word desire again. Isn't it interesting that our desires cause us to do a whole lot of things, don't they? I'd argue your desire for groceries and paying your electric bill probably causes you to get up in the morning and go to work, right? Your desire for a nice home causes you to clean it and take care of it. Your desire for a good car means we check the oil every now and then, right? Our desire to want those things propels our life's actions, and we do the very things that we desire. You're married to who you're married to right now because at some point in life you desire her, right? That's a joke, y'all. Y'all can laugh. True Baptist right here, right? And, and ladies, you're married to him because at one point in life you desired him. He didn't have the man bod when you married him, right? Or the, the dad bod, right? I think that's what they call it today, the dad bod. Our desires drive what we do. And those desires can sometimes get us in trouble, as James makes out here. He says, when we're lured and we're enticed by our own desire, and here's the effect that James calls out. He says, and when desire is conceived... It gives birth to sin, and when sin, it is fully grown, brings forth death. Folks, I hear often, the devil made me do it, or the devil did this, or the devil did that. Folks, I don't need no help from the devil. i got enough problems with my own desire. The other D in my life that causes me more problems than Satan does. It's my own flesh and my own desire in life that provides a challenge. So we've got to examine our own desire 
The desire of Israel was to go after idolaters, to get up every day and just play and have a jolly life. But he goes on to tell us we also have to examine the instructions that God has given us in verse 11. Notice in verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages come. Isn't it wonderful that we have a written record Man, it's available in so many ways today. It's just absolutely amazing what God has done in our generation to make His Word available to the nations, to you, to me. I've got it like on every... I could probably preach my sermon off my watch right now if I wanted to, right? I mean, we've got so many technological ways. People are watching us from Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, all over the place right now that I know of that are online watching us. If you're there, hello, God bless you, right? Technology has been wonderful. We have versions and translations of the Bible. In my office, I've got a, a, an English Bible and a Vietnamese Bible. It's, but they're side by side, so I can fake my way through the passage when I'm teaching in Vietnam, right? We have all kinds of different techniques. If you, if you need a different style of Bible, God has seen fit to get one in your hands so that you can read His Word. We're probably the most Bible-rich society that we've ever seen in America. The challenge is... Like that Ikea furniture. We don't read the instructions first. We just go right into assembly, don't we? And then we realize, man, I'm missing some pieces. And if you're like me, we just get the saw out and we cut it and trim it to fit, right? I did that with a playground I bought one time. I bought one of them cedar playgrounds from Sam's Club. And I got just about done with the end. I was putting the railings around. And just something wasn't right. <laughs> but I got tools. And I got a drill. And, and I made it fit. And at the end of it, I didn't have to take it back apart. And I was happy. And nobody knew the difference, right? We don't read the instructions often. Let me give you three key facts about God's instructions that you may not be very familiar with. A few facts, if you will. Number one, God loves us enough to let us know. Think about that. God loves you enough. Not only did he send his only begotten son into the world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God loves you enough to give us a written record of it so at any time we wanted, we can open the Word of God and we don't have to cry out, Lord, speak to me. We can open His Word and God's speaking to us on every single page. Isn't that beautiful? God loves you and I enough to let us know what His instructions are. Matter of fact, He, he loves us enough to give us provisions like churches, and Sunday school classes, and small groups, and Bible study, and right now media, and other online sources, so that we could hear his word and his teaching. I'd argue there's no extent that God hasn't gone through, or won't go through, to communicate his love for you and I. It's his love that propels him. I'd argue it's our love for him that compels us to follow. God loves us, number two, enough to show us the way. Number two, to show us the way. He doesn't just say, here's my instructions, read it. Jesus Christ left God in, God in heaven, became God incarnate into flesh, and walked an earthly life, experiencing everything that you and I experience. You know, the Bible says that he was tempted in every way, but yet without sin. Now, it doesn't take long for my mind to wander on all the different things that I'm tempted with. Like, oh, Jesus was tempted with that too. The scripture says he was tempted in every 
way. Whatever your temptation is, whatever your desire is that entices you, I, I read that scripture's verse that Jesus knows what my struggles are. Jesus can relate with what I deal with on a daily basis, but yet was found without sin. It's what made him, as Spurgeon would often cry, as John the cried, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Spotless, unblemished, prepared for the sacrifice, the atonement of the sins of all mankind. God loves us enough to show us the way. He modeled it for us. Something he didn't deserve. He took on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So we may become his righteousness. Thirdly, though, lastly, God's instructions loves us enough to be patient with us as we grow. Folks, I'm, I'm so grateful today that God doesn't do like he did during the book of Acts when we lie about what we give to the church and we gave the whole thing as, as a couple folks did in the Old Testament and God struck them dead right there as they walked in the aisle with their fake offering and they carried them out, first the husband, then the wife. Or as we just read in the Old Testament, how those who were engaging in sexual idolatry, 21,000 were swallowed up in one day. Some were bitten by serpents and died in the wilderness. Aren't you glad that we don't see the wrath of God like he showed us in examples in the Old Testament? God loves us enough to be patient as we grow because we know it's quite a, bit of, quite a bit of instruction that he's given us to walk and to, to live a life in Christ. But you know, it's not what we do that gives us eternal life through Christ. It's what he's already done for you and I. That God demonstrated his love for us that yet while we were in the present tense, while we were doing it, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Loves us enough to let us know. Loves us enough to show us how. Loves us enough to be patient even as we grow and we learn from our mistakes when we apply the lessons, when we apply the right answers to the examination. Now, if you've ever watched travel shows, and I'll transition to our third point, I got an image here. I was watching a documentary on Alaska, fascinated with Alaska, right? And one of the things I learned, I didn't know this, their tidal swings are so massive. People like to go out at low tide, which you see here in the picture. But there's a problem with walking out on low tide that I had never thought about. There's a thing in Alaska called mud flats. Now, that's not when your tire goes down, okay? That's not what you do to go four-wheeling. Mud flats are something you don't want to get caught in. It's when you walk in it, you sink to your waist. Not necessarily a bad thing until the tide comes in, right? And then it's over your head, and you can't get out. So there's a warning sign all over the place. So when you watch those travel shows and documentaries, I get a kick out of it. Ten things you need to not do when you go here to keep you safe as a tourist. Number one, don't feed the bears, right? Literally. And one of them was, don't walk on the floods. Why, why, do, we, why do we put signs like that up? Because we want to help people enjoy the experience. We want them to take away good things from their walk and their visit and wherever they are geographically. We want them to learn those things so we can protect them. And I would argue this last part, Paul is warning and writing the church. He's giving us a travel guide, if you will, a tip to help heavenly-oriented people navigate the journey safely in this life. And he begins by giving us some very unique instructions. Look with me in verse 12 through 13. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. My, my, it's not my favorite, y'all, but I get a kick out of it. 
me and the good Lord, me, me and the big man upstairs got an understanding, Pastor. I, I hear that often in the, in the hospital when I visit and when I'm sharing Christ with somebody and they come back with their little remarks about their relationship with the big man upstairs. That, number one, that's an indicator for me, you don't know who he is. Because to call him the big man upstairs, thinking that's some term of endearment, uh, just makes me shiver a little bit. We don't know the true Yahweh Elohim that parted the Red Sea that made the ground dry, that provided the male, the manna and the quail, that provided Calvary for you, to flippantly call him the big man upstairs. Maybe me and Jesus just ain't that close yet. Maybe one day. But right now, he's still the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, right? But God gives us some principles. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Folks, there is no one that is impervious to the impact of sin in our daily life. You don't have to watch the news long in our culture and generation of social media and instantaneous information to see a minister, a religious leader, someone who had been faithful of professing the Lord Jesus Christ, and to turn on the news and to see that they had a significant moral failure in their life and have fallen. God's giving us some warning here. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I've had some training. We've got some folks that, that like to do these wilderness survival classes and, and a few things we teach often is like the the escape techniques. How do you get out of this situation? I think Paul gives us a few here that we can look at. How do we escape this issue of sin and temptation and, and the destruction that comes? Number one, I, I'd share with you in these three escape principles, self-examination is the first thing. Self-examination. Notice Paul says, take heed if you think you're right with God and everything in your life is perfect. You see, we have two types of sin that we often refer to in our life, in our Christian walk. We have sins of commission, like duh, right? We all know that when it's easy. That's what we read about on the news. The things that people have done that have made the headlines, that maybe you've done and made the headlines in, in Heaven's Journal about the sin in our life. And then there's the other sin, and we call it the sin of omission. Things we should be doing that we know to be doing that we're not doing that we will be held accountable for. You see, when we come to Christ, here's the interesting thing. So if, if, you, if you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about whether or not you will ever lose your salvation. And if you're listening and you're one of those that believe you can, take me out to lunch. I will spend all day talking with you, okay? The Scripture is clear that Jesus paid the penalty for you and I once and for all. To Telestai, he says, it is finished. Nothing else needing to be done. So to think that we can lose the very thing that Jesus secured on Calvary's cross for you and I is impossible. Once saved, always saved. If you're saved. That's the key answer, right? If you're saved. But there's a self-examination required here. As we walk with Christ, we will be held accountable, not for the sins of our life of what we've done before Christ, but for how we have used the gospel, how we have been faithful with the gospel, how we have been faithful in our walk with Christ to serve the kingdom of God. That's what every Christian will give an account for. 
not for the sins of yesteryear that have been cast as far as the east is from the west, the depths of the ocean, never to be seen again, expunged from record, gone from memory, never to be brought back up. You can't go into your computer hard drive and recover that document. It's gone. There's no record. But we will give an account for what we do for Christ when we stand before him. And each one of us, God has given gifts. He's given every single person in the body of Christ at least one gift. And I fully believe that one day when we stand before the Messiah, we will give an account for how we have used those gifts. Only rightly so, right? If I give you something, I expect it to be used well. But secondly, if you'll remember, you ever heard the adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Yeah, when we examine, it's better for us to know what's going on and prevent it from happening than having to clean up the mess after the fact, right? Self-examination helps us do that thing. But secondly, notice that sin struggles are real to everyone. Everyone. If you're struggling with particular sins in your life, just know that you're not, it's not uncommon. You're not that one-off weird person that just can't cut it in the Christian walk, so I've got to throw away my faith and go chase the world. Folks, every single person created in the image of God, in his likeness, male and female, he created them, struggles with sin. So much so that in Romans chapter 3, Paul reminds us for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. We've heard that before. But in Romans 7, 14 through 24, he goes on. Now keep this in mind. The writer of 13 Pauline epistles wrote almost half of the New Testament. This writer is talking about his own struggle with sin in chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. And I'll summarize it this way. He says, Why do I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do? Oh, what a wretched man of, of God, what a wretched man of God am I? Who will deliver me from this? Oh, but Christ Jesus. He says, There's a thing in the flesh that I have in my body that makes me do things I don't want to do spiritually. Things that in my mind I know I don't want to do, but there's something in my flesh. Folks, I, I want you to know we all struggle with sin. But we have a Savior that's greater than our sin. We have a salvation that's greater than our sin. And we have a way to escape it. And he goes on to explain that in the next verse. He says in the second part of verse 13, God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with, that, with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. See, the Savior secures us, and He saves us securely. There's not anything that, it's not us holding on to God's hand that brings us into the kingdom of God. Folks, it's God reaching down and holding on to us that secures us. It's God that keeps us. It's God that saves us. It's God that secures us. How do I know that? Let me read for you what Jesus said in John six thirty nine. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, how do you argue with that? That's not an apostle. That's not a general letter. That's Jesus who paid that penalty, who paid that cost, saying what he's going to do and why he did it, so that we may be secure. And I will raise him up on the last day. Man, what a, what a fire escape 
What a way to know that our trust and our faith in Christ Jesus will help us persevere to the very end. Let me close and share with you, if you've ever taken one of those exams, if you've ever applied for a certificate or a, a degree and you had to get out, you had to take that final exam and you ever, hear, you ever hear the professor tell you, all right, class, it's going to be an open book test. Yes. Now, that's yes and that's awesome if you're going for some things, but some things you realize you had like 14 textbooks for that class. And you're like, 14 textbooks? I've got 45 minutes to take this test. How am I going to work through that? So we can't go in there cold turkey and not knowing what we got to know. We have to have applied all of those answers that were given to us along life's journey so that we can pass the test, right? One of the greatest challenges with an open book test is knowing how to use it. I'd argue knowing the Bible is the same way. There's an image here, and if you'll notice by the image, that, that one's not doing a whole lot of good to pass the final exam of life. What's it say on the cover written in dust? Read me. Right? One of the greatest joys of being discipled is learning how to apply the very tools that God has given us to pass the final exam. We already have all the answers. Now we get to experience applying them in our daily life as we walk as the family of God, as children of God, and doing life together. Aren't you glad that God's given us all the answers that we need to pass the exam. Aren't you glad that he's not only given us the answers, he's given us the very provision, not in the way of manna, not in the way of water, not in the way of quail, but he gave his very son, Jesus Christ, who said, I have came to seek and save those who are lost. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as we close our service today, it's my prayer that there's been some lessons learned but I had a wise man once tell me, it's not really learned until we begin to apply it. It's just a random fact. Lessons are only learned when we begin to apply them. So let me ask you today, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? How many times have you sat under the preaching of a man and you've heard the gospel plan proclaimed and you walk out of the church thinking, well, maybe next week after I hear a little bit more. You see, that's not a lesson learned. That's just a fact that you heard something. Have you applied it to your life? Has there been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? As you've repented of your sin, you've began a walk of discipleship, joined with His church to truly know all that God has prepared for us. And for us, church, I'd argue we often have a head full of Bible knowledge. We know all the stories. We know David and Goliath and Samson and Delilah and all the characters. But are we applying the very lessons that those stories are really for? Are we applying these in our daily walk to be strengthened, to be the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, so that we can indeed take the gospel hope to the world? So, Father, we thank you for the word you've given us today. We thank you for its proclamation and its truth. We thank you for the lessons that have been given to us as examples. But, Father, I pray that they also are learned lessons, that we may not repeat the same mistakes, but continue to move forward in our progress of serving you and growing more Christ-like every day. Lord, if there's one here that does not know you, one here that is wrestling with this issue of salvation, thinking there's no way God could love me for my sin is too deep and too red, we know that's not true. 
Father, we know your scripture tells us there is no sin too great that your offer of salvation does not cover with the blood of Christ. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, may today be the day of salvation. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.